Welcome to the Truth Exchange podcast, unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. I'm your host, Joshua Gilo, and I have with me Mary Weller and Stephen Shavura. Welcome back to the program. It's good to have everyone back with us. Great to be here. Hi, Joshua. Hi, Stephen. So, so nice to see you guys. Likewise. Just a quick bit of information. April 5th to the 10th is our first online symposium, The State of Our Disunion. Dr. Jones has framed it as this way. The Ameri- America is a house divided and its foundations seem to be cracking. The civil disorder and violence afflicts the Republic and the church is increasingly split. Is America and the church systemically racist? What do we say to Black Lives Matter? Should Christians be woke? Can the church survive if it remains faithful to biblical teachings on gender and sexuality? And how do Christians respond to modern economic and ecological crises? Young Christians need to know that the Bible is more relevant and powerful than ever, and that the scriptures speak more deeply into these issues than anything else. There are answers and there is hope. So please join us. Mark your calendars. We have a wonderful lineup of speakers, including Mary Weller and Stephen Shavura, as well as others such as Cal Beisner, Jeffrey Ventrella, Thaddeus Williams, and of course, Peter Jones. There's a few more, but uh, you can visit our website. Again, the date is April 5th to the 10th. This event is free, uh, but um, and, and we need your support. So uh, if you feel like the Lord moving you to donate uh, to this event, please do so. You can also do that online. So we are now under uh, a Biden administration. Trump did not make it into office, and things have quickly begun to change as far as in the landscape of the country. One of those being is the Equality Act. Uh, Dr. Jones just wrote an article recently on it called Free Speech. Stephen, would you like to define what, what the Equality Act is? Yeah, yeah. Well, the Equality Act um, 2021 is essentially an amendment to the 1964 Equality Act, whose main purpose was to remove uh, racial discrimination uh, from American institutions, basically to help end, uh, uh, to help desegregate America and uh, bring about racial equality. And it's gone through several iterations since then over the years, including um, women's rights in the act. But the, this latest iteration uh, amends the act Uh, to include, uh, quote, um, sexual orientation and, quote, gender identity. So the purpose of the Equality Act 2021 or Biden's Equality Act is uh, to remove discrimination uh, from uh, those who have a particular gender identity. And of course, the key term there is identity, how they see themselves in terms of gender. And dare I say it, probably even sex and also to remove uh, apparent discriminations uh, based on sexual orientation. So it's essentially an amendment of the 1964 Racial Equality Act, if we could call it something like that, mm-hmm. which kind of brings it into the modern uh, discussion of gender and sexuality. So it's sort of a, an unfolding of the American civil rights tradition, but taking it in a direction uh, which I think you know, all biblical Christians would argue uh, is uh, quite um, m- misleading. And what I think we'll find over the course of this podcast actually quite counterproductive uh, to America and quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. And this was passed by the House. It's, it's now going before the Senate. And in Dr. Jones's article on free speech, he says the Equality Act that passed in the House provides provision to remove any defense for religious principles and requires virtually every restroom, locker room, and dressing room in America to open to transgender individuals. At this level of bathroom intimacy, our children will learn that there is no opposite sex. He further goes on to say that the Equality Act uh, rules will apply to shared hospital rooms or wards, locker rooms, public or group showers, jails, prisons, juvenile detention facilities, homeless shelters, overnight drug rehabilitation centers, and domestic violence for rape uh, crisis shelters. I mean, that's just... Yeah, that's, um, I think, Stephen, you gave an excellent overview of what uh, this act encompasses. And then underneath that, 
Um, I think it's really important for people to understand that in addition to adding gender identity and sexual orientation to these protected groups, they also expanded the definition of public accommodations under the Title II of the Civil Rights Act. So they so it's not as limited as it used to be. And they also made provisions saying that what used to be protected like for churches and religious organizations under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, those protections have been taken away. So it's not just adding these two categories to the protected groups, it's taking away protections for religious groups and it's expanding, um, I mean, Dr. Jones gave a, a great list. I have one here too. I mean, it's funeral parlors, individual individuals and establishments. Uh, it's public parks, it's services and care centers. I mean, it really is this globular description that's that's mm. been added in. So there really is no place to hide. <laughs> um, well, that's, a, that's such an important point, Mary, that it does explicitly say, and, I, and I'll quote the actual Equality Act here. Yes. It says, quote, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So that was the act passed in 1993 under Bill Clinton to preserve yes. religious freedoms. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act shall not provide a claim concerning or a defense to a claim under the act, nor provide a basis for challenging the application or enforcement of the act, end quote. So essentially, exactly what uh, Mary says, that uh, a religious institution, uh, let's say um, uh, a, a school perhaps, who mm -hmm. wants to teach uh, traditional uh, gender theories or who, isn't, who doesn't want to uh, affirm and, and facilitate the transition of a child from one gender to another or something like that, they can't, they can't appeal to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, to protect them, uh, to protect their uh, freedom of religion to do that. So this, this Equality Act um, is actually the very opposite. Uh, mm -hmm. It's actually an inequality act because it essentially removes freedom of conscience and freedom of religion from anyone uh, in America who wants to oppose uh, the, particularly the transgender uh, agenda. Yeah, and the, the minutiae, like the, the level of detail um, in just sitting down and Stephen, it's clear that you've done the same thing and sitting down and reading through every single amendment that was made, like the level of detail uh, to which they went through and made these changes was quite astounding. There was a, a part of the amendment too that uh, refers to the belief that marriage is between a man and a woman as a sex stereotype now. So even <laughs> just on every level, um, and it also touches on issues of abortion. Yes. Um, so the protections that um, were in place for people who held religious convictions about not ending life in the womb, those are being stripped away too. I mean, it's, mm. it just is mind boggling. So it's incredible, about... and it manages to do that by by expanding the definition of of sex so broadly to include pregnancy, childbirth, or quote related medical condition. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for a doctor to refuse to perform an abortion, or even to refer a woman to a doctor, to another doctor to have an abortion, that is now considered sex discrimination or the withholding of sort of valid uh, 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 treatment for a valid medical condition. It's just, it's unbelievable right. what this act is. Right. If a doctor will perform mastectomies and hysterectomies because of cancer, for instance, uh, that means then if they won't remove healthy breasts or a healthy uterus for someone who's trans identifying, then they're discriminating based on gender identity. So yeah. what is used to treat disease now is to be used in this other way and you're discriminating if you want and like Stephen said even a doctor who says I cannot perform this for you but I'll refer you to the clinic down the street they're discriminating and they can they can get hit with all kinds of fines and I mean it, it can ruin their careers yeah, it can absolutely. end them so let's for talk sure. about um, identity then for the LGBTQ group or person they're feeling an ex uh, they're feeling discriminated against and they're asking for for help. They're asking for some sort of cause, and and 
and it's it's you Christians, you're a bunch of, of meanies. Should we, shouldn't we feel sorry for them? Shouldn't we um, take up their cause and 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 seek some sort of defense for this category, a group of people? Mary, did you want to speak to that first? Or, you know, <laughs> I'm happy to. Yeah. First. I have my thoughts, but yeah. um, well, I think, Joshua, that first we need to talk about what gender identity or gender dysphoria actually is. Um, and Stephen, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but immediately what comes to mind is in all of the extensive reading that I've done, what I have found the most helpful is uh, this comparison of gender dysphoria to things like body dysmorphic disorders. Uh, so for instance, anorexia. Um, so if you had someone who came to you and you're a physician or you're a counselor and um, she is 90 pounds, you know, she's 45 pounds underweight for what she medically healthily should be. And she thinks that she needs to get put on a diet. Uh, no doctor, worth anything, no counselor worth anything would say, you know what, you're right. Um, you identify as obese and therefore we're going to treat you as obese. And so we're going to put you on all these diet pills. We're going to have you on this exercise regimen. And so no one would do that. And this dysphoria, um, having to do with gender, this idea that you're in the wrong body, you're actually a male trapped in a female's body. Um, it's interesting because the language used to describe bulimics and anorexics is very, very similar. They feel that they're fat, even though they're in a thin body, but that disjoinder, that's what needs to be dealt with. Okay. So, so but Mary, but th these folks are saying, this is my story. This is my experience. And you guys are oppressing me. They're absolutely saying you, that. You're and bullying I, me. I think that this is where, you know, we have a conflict between ideology and biological science. Stephen, you might be able to speak, to speak to that more, but I think that we really do have to make choices as a culture, as a society um, to deal in reality because otherwise everything comes apart. And so they may feel bullied. They may want to be affirmed, but in the end, what are we calling good? How are we doing these people good by affirming what is not actually real? Well, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, Mary, that at the bottom of all of this, we need to ask the question, what is real? And there's so much to unpack uh, with what, what you said and, and the questions that uh, Josh is asking. Yeah. Um, I mean, the very concept of oppression, um, what we need to clarify is that oppression is when maybe a person or a group of people are stopped uh, by another group or maybe a system from doing something that they should be allowed to do, yeah. from doing something that is good for them or that at the very least is a legitimate thing to do. That is oppression. Mm -hmm. um, oppression or to be oppressed is not simply being stopped from what you want to do. You have to have a right to do it. And it also has to be, it has to be something that's legitimate and something that's good for you. So obviously slavery was oppression. It mm -hmm. stopped Africans from being able to live uh, free and 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 perfectly uh, fulfilling lives. So that was definite oppression. Um, now, stopping someone from going through body surgery or going through uh, hormones to repress puberty or something like that, uh, I would not call that oppression. Uh, because just because they want to do that doesn't mean that they should be doing that. It's not the right thing to do. If I can give an example, you guys will probably remember a few years ago, there was a TED talk by a young woman who was essentially arguing that pedophilia or probably better put pederasty uh, is a natural urge yep. among those who we would call pedophiles or pederasts. It's right. a natural thing for them. Now, she's probably right that it probably feels perfectly natural for them. And she's probably right to suggest that to some extent, maybe to a large extent, a lot of them cannot help it. And nonetheless, we are in a society where we don't allow them to express that particular mode of sexuality. Are we oppressing them? No, we're not. Why? Because they have absolutely no right to express that particular mode of sexuality. We're not oppressing them. We are repressing them because mm -hmm. we want those urges repressed, but we have a right to repress them because they are not good uh, for anyone 
uh, but that is not oppression. So once we distinguish between oppression, uh, once we define oppression properly, uh, that is stopping people from doing something that they should be allowed to do, and, and I'd say even wrongfully stopping them from doing that, then we can actually say uh, to the transgender community, if you like, well, yeah, you know something, we don't want to affirm your beliefs about gender and sexuality, and we don't actually want to um, put you down a path of of surgery changing your body uh, because, not because we're mean, but because this is actually really bad for you. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we do want as much as possible to put you through counseling to try over time to repress and at least manage those particular feelings so you can actually live a much better life. Uh, that is not oppression at all. And part of the problem is we've lost the distinction between merely wanting something and having a right to something because it is a good thing and in accordance with our human nature. Uh, and that's yeah. part of what's going on. Yeah, and I would just add too, because I think that people tend to say, well, so in the example of a pedophile or a pederast, that that, is, that would not be a victimless acting out of one's desires. Um, whereas with those who identify as transgender, they're saying, well, it's my body, it's my right. This is what I wanna do for my own good. And then there is also this definition of for your own good, because when you look at the studies, seven to 10 years after transition sur surgery is the highest rate of suicidal ideation. When you look at the fact that children who um, identify as transgender who are treated with watchful waiting where there's no medical intervention, 85 to 90%, no, I'm sorry, 80 to 95% of the time uh, that gender dysphoria resolves itself. Um, and, and so it self heals, if you will, but yeah. children who are put on puberty blockers uh, so that they're not forced to go through the quote unquote wrong uh, puberty, uh, they 100% of the time transition. You know, So what are we calling good? What is the good outcome that we're looking for? And I think that we've been sold <clears throat> excuse me, an idea that if you put children on puberty blockers, if you allow girls to take testosterone, if you do surgical modification to bodies, that that will lay to rest the dysphoria and the mental anguish that they are expressing when in fact, medically and statistically, that's exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a victimless crime either. Right. Uh, we, we don't allow people to cut. Uh, we don't allow people to, you know, there are people who identify quite literally, um, you know, as being blind. And so they want to be blinded or to, to be a quadriplegic. And so they, they want to have medical damage done to them so that they identify with themselves. And we would call that self-harm. But for some reason with this gender label, we try to put it in a different category and medically and statistically, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It does damage. Yeah. And, and can I, Thank you for saying that so, so beautifully. And if I could speak directly to, to Joshua's earlier question, you know, shouldn't we feel sorry for these people? Well, absolutely, we should, but not because they're being oppressed um, by, by those who would reject transgender ideology. You could probably make some kind of an argument that they're being oppressed by a new sort of spirit of the times, a new zeitgeist that has emerged, which is stopping what Mary correctly said is kind of the natural inclination to mental health among mm. these young people. And, and, and she said it perfectly, like, you know, um, among children, uh, up to 90% of them. And yeah, it's, I, I've seen estimations from between 60 to 90% uh, mm -hmm. to between 80 to 90 or 95%. But yeah. the overwhelming majority, the overwhelming majority will naturally over time, you know, before they hit the age of 20, feel perfectly comfortable in their own bodies. And should we feel sorry for, for these people? Absolutely, because they're now living in a culture that is stifling the natural progression to mental health, that these traumatized, generally traumatized young people are feeling. They're being sent all sorts of messages in their schools, in the media, um, from, from all around them, mm. that these feelings that they are feeling 
are who they really, really are. Mm-hmm. And anyone who tells them otherwise is trying to hurt them. And so they feel like they're in a, that their parents are trying to hurt them. They mm-hmm. feel like their ministers and friends are trying to hurt them. Yep. And consequently, that is something that's only going to lead to more mental health. It's going to convict them uh, of a false identity of who they are. And then they're going to go down a path that's going to be irreversible. So should we feel sorry for them? Absolutely. Absolutely. But not necessarily for the reasons that the left would, would suggest that we should. Yeah. Statistically, or as far as demographics of of people, it seems, um, not it seems, the numbers are saying that the LGBTQ community is, is significantly smaller than, than, than the population that is not however every time i talk to people at church or when i go to the uh, college to do work there i'm hearing more and more and seeing more and more presence it seems like those numbers are actually rising and Mm -hmm. it it takes me back um, back 20 plus years ago when i was in high school there was a there was a tv program called uh on mtv called the real world yeah it, it was it was one of the, the the first televised real life you know camera follows you around you put a bunch of random strangers in a yeah. in a room in a, a hotel not a hotel but a, an apartment together and they they duke out real life one and, stop and, being real start being real and stop being polite or something was right and so point, yeah. it, one in one of the 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 folks on this this show when it first came out he was he was openly gay and the, this 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 program was in it was i think it was in new york anyways he he contracted aids and he died and, and so mtv televises this whole thing and i remember very distinctly that moment when he died something really massive shifted in the culture at my high school where before you would always hear people say oh that's gay oh, you're gay and it was, and it was a, it was like a slur, but once that happened, that was no longer accepted in the culture of my high school to use that term. It was like, mm-hmm. how dare you? We just watched a, you know, we just watched a gay guy die, and it it shifted uh, opinions of of folks. Now, granted, th- this person is Mago Day, and and but died in his sin, and and so here now now. We're seeing more and more in television specifically, and I, I've, I've noticed this just from having children and t- children's programs of all this revival or introduction of LGBTQ characters and relationships. And uh, there's a new there's a new one that just came out on Disney about this this princess or something to that protects dragons. But oh, don't you know, she's gay. And, and it, it's, it's shifting children's opinions and informing children's opinions about this. So, Stephen, you talked about uh, it's important to define terms. And, uh, and, and we've talked about oppression. Um, and, uh, but what about identity? How should we define identity? Because that's what they're saying. Uh, the, at least the, the, the LGBTQ is like, well, this is my identity. This, this is, it seeps into everything that I do. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's not an easy question to answer. How should we define identity? Uh, I mean, you know, arguably, um, there probably are some subjective elements in anyone's identity. I mean, for example, you know, in terms of personality, you know, I, I, you know, someone might say, well, I fancy myself kind of funny, I'm interested in these sorts of things. Uh, These are my beliefs about the world that that those are kind of subjective things that that are legitimate to import into a person's identity. But there are other things that that are part of everyone's identity that are not matters of subjectivity and not things that we simply declare or, or, or declare simply as an act of will. So our sex uh, is just an objective part of anyone's identity. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, this term is a controversial term and I use it use- loosely, but our, one's race, um, even in degrees of race, um, is an objective element to our, our identity. Mm-hmm. And, and there are you know, uh, other objective elements to identity as well. So identity is sort of a cluster of 
attributes, uh, some of them are totally objective, and others probably do hinge more on sort of personal beliefs and things like that. But we're getting to the point now socially where everything about an individual identity is simply subjective, is simply because I want it to be that way or because I say it is that way. It's really quite remarkable if I can, if I can sort of, something that really jumped out at me was the JK Rowling controversy, I think in 2020, where Rowling said, look, um, we shouldn't be the script, we, we shouldn't be demonizing women who believe that, that sex is a biological, fixed, scientific, objective category. If you don't want to believe that, fine, but we shouldn't be demonizing people who do, and we shouldn't be demonizing people who don't jump onto the transgender ideology bandwagon. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the response to her was absolutely uh, enlightening about a shift that's taken place over the last 30 years in terms of worldview. Because J.K. Rowling tweeted, and she used the word real. She, I think she used the word like, a, like real sex or real woman or something, but she used the word real. She was appealing to an objective reality outside of us that is meant to shape and inform the way that we think. I mean, that's the, that's the, 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 the definition of objectivity is the idea that there is an object outside of us that is informing us from the outside. Mm-hmm. The response to her from millennials and Zoomers was basically, how dare you question and, and how, who people say they are? And they use the word said, how dare you question? People are who they say they are. And what you've got going on is essentially an inversion of the divine human order, where in the book of Genesis, in fact, the only, per- the only person who has the, the power and authority to speak existence is God. Mm-hmm. God speaks things into existence. When God speaks, it is. And now we're sort of getting rid of God and we're arrogating that right to simply speak and will existence according to our own desires. So there's something deeply theological or, that, that's going on. Um, yeah. You've absolutely hit on something that I think Joshua and I talked about one time before, which is so interesting about all of this to me. I mean, it's interesting, but it's also tragic. Uh, and that is because we, we have this sense as human beings that just by saying it doesn't make it true. And mm-hmm. so then we have to do physical things to try to change it. So I say that I am a man, biologically, I'm a woman. So now we're going to scalpels and medications to try to change that physical reality because we can't just do it with our words. And so there's this violence that comes into it. So we're told, you know, if you, uh, misgender a person in your speech, or you dead name them, name them, you know, you use their prior name that you're doing them violence um, by your speech. And yet there is this actual real violence, the removal of breasts, the removal, the disfigurement of body parts in order to try to make them look like this other thing, but that's good. And that's our human attempt at changing that physical reality. It's just, uh, it's, it is theological, Stephen. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, it goes to the, the Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he, him, male and female created he, them. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I don't know how, if we could tie this or, or not, but as Mary, as you were speaking about, if you were to say that you're a man, then you need to do X, Y, and Z, which is so interesting because right now in churches, here, at least in the States, and I, I would probably assume it is, it's still an issue, or it's an issue in, in the greater world of the church, that the church is pushing back, or leaders are pushing back to say, well, you shouldn't say that a man should do X, Y, and Z, because that is toxic masculinity. Whereas you see lesbians saying, well, in order for me to be, or transgender, in order for me to be this, I have to do the things that the church is pushing back on already, right? There's a man who transitioned into a woman and he, he joined the women's league and he, he beat this woman to a bloody pulp. And, and the woman who, who, the actual woman fighter after the, the fight, she said, the one, this isn't fair. 
And she says, I've never felt so helpless in all my life. Right? Because yeah. a man posing as a woman gets into the ring and beats a woman up. And, and, her skull. and, and we're to be okay with this. Not only do we be okay with it, uh, we're to praise those that do such things. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is the thing, and it gets back to what you, Josh, and Mary were sort of saying. Once you erase that created order, and, and you, I mean, you know, you know, in you know Genesis chapter one, you've got a created order. You know, God creates us in His, his image, male and female, and then. Uh, the command to go and multiply. Uh, so in all of that, you've got objective gender, and you've also got a you've also got what our model of sexuality should be, which is male and female, uh, for the ultimate purpose of procreation. It's all there in Genesis, and and there's there's a there's a definite order set out there. Mm -hmm. And what we're in right now, yeah, we're kind of weirdly. Uh, it's I've been trying to think about this for a long, long time, and it seems to me that what we're in in the sort of liberal democratic west is a culture that for about you know 400 500 years depending on where you are has been shaped very strongly not just by sort of christianity but by protestant christianity with its emphasis on the dignity of the individual and yet and that sort of all goes relatively swimmingly until you unhook the idea of human dignity from any objective idea of, well, what is it to be a human being? What are we meant to be doing? Uh, mm -hmm. What is it to be a male? What is it to be a female? And when you hook individuality and individual dignity from the biblical understanding of the image of God as sort of imposing a kind of order on our nature, that's when you get real problems. You get basically no definition left of what it is to be a human being mm. and with with all sorts of technological advances uh, that are blurring the distinctions between men and women socially in terms of the work that we can do um, and also just being able to blur the distinction between us physically by being able to repress the natural um uh, the, you know, the, the natural progression of, of, of human biology uh, from girlhood to womanhood, boyhood to manhood. Basically, what this means is we're in a culture where we, we have a very sort of Protestant stress on individual dignity, but there are no boundaries to and individual freedom, but there are no boundaries to our freedom. Uh, there's no distinction, therefore, between feeling and reality. Um, and consequently, any message now that would suggest that we are bound to an objective reality grounded, whether it's in science or whether it's in scripture is considered oppressive. Uh, and that's kind of weirdly where we are at the moment. And, and, that, and that's the thing. Um, once you do away with the order laid down by God in Genesis, once that just becomes not a social given anymore, then yeah, you wind up in a society where male is female, uh, where where uh, Mary brought this up beautifully, beautifully, where something we would consider violence to one's own body actually is considered healing, mm -hmm. uh, where freedom mm -hmm. is where, where actually sub slavery to really unhelpful desires and mentally detrimental feelings where kind of a slavery and bondage to that is considered freedom and, and liberation. So we're not going to free you by getting you to understand that you're not born in the wrong body. We're going to free you by confirming that very belief. Uh, you know, this is what happens in a society that unhooks it, that, that has this vague abstract conception of human dignity totally unhooked though from a biblical understanding of order yeah and it's so interesting to me Stephen, to hear you talk about this um because men who seek to identify as women and women who seek to identify as men too it it becomes this very, and I'm going to use this word, and I think it's going to offend some people, but it, it becomes a very shallow representation. Um, 
so all of the nuance of who you are as men and you know i've got 15 year old boys so they're making that transition where suddenly i'm hearing additional male voices in my house you know these man voices and um i've i've got two girls also who i'm watching become you know transition from girls to women and there's so much involved in that there's so much involved in their femaleness and in their maleness um I know what it's like to have gone through the puberty of a woman and to have always had this body and to certainly be uncomfortable in it. Something I found, Stephen, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, I told Joshua, but I took a bunch of am I trans quizzes and I was a tomboy growing up. I was very sporty. I was much more comfortable in jeans and tennis shoes than I ever was in a dress. Um, I played with GI Joes instead of Barbies. Um, I was a tomboy. But what I found was um, I, I was still a girl, but looking at it through the social constructs that we have right now, every single quiz told me that I was genderqueer or bigendered or definitely transgendered. And um, so it's, it's really interesting to me that my playing with GI Joes didn't have anything to do in essence with my femaleness. So we call these things feminine and masculine, but and trying to erase those distinctions, then we, we come up with these kind of like messy stereotypical, like the, the stereotype of a woman gets presented. Yeah. Um, the stereotype of a man gets presented. And so I, I don't know what to do with that, but it's just, it's so, um, I've grown in my appreciation for like the intricate delicacy of God's design, the artistry of who he created us to be and, and to see us try to recreate that as humans unhooked, as you said, from him, it, it's so clum, clumsy. Um, and that's not a judgment on the people who are feeling this way, but it is a judgment on our thinking that we can create this alternate reality. And it, it just, I don't know what to do with it. It's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Yeah, I think we all have been. I'm wondering actually whether a lot of this is a result of uh, sex and gender being unhooked from reproduction, particularly since the early 1960s. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that at the foundation of any definition of what it is to be a man and healthy masculinity and what it is to be a woman and healthy femininity must be procreation in a sense that what, what is it to be a, a healthy, well-adjusted man, the kind of man that can be relied on by a particular kind of woman to support her in childbirth and looking after children, the kind of man that has the sorts of virtues that can essentially support a family, particularly when the wife is at those very vulnerable stages where she's got very young children if the man left her she'd be destitute so mm -hmm. and then of course you know, what is it to be a, a healthy woman well again you would relate that also to children as well to have to have the kinds of virtues and strengths that would allow you to be able to carry out the necessary duties of being a mother and yeah. with you know the advent of of contraception we've basically unhooked the meaning of being a man and the meaning of being a woman from procreation and mm -hmm. family. And we're just kind of floundering around looking for other ways right. uh, to define what it is to be a man, because you can't say, oh, to be a man is to be a breadwinner and to be able to support a woman because that's considered sexist. But also given the fact that women are now in the workforce that the state supports single mothers, there's a sense in which it kind of doesn't make sense anymore. Right. And, and that's, I think that there's something going on there that sort of unhooking femininity and masculinity mm -hmm. from procreation, again, a part of the original order. And a part a of the results of sin too. And this is something um, geeking out here, but <laughs> when you look then at the curses as a result of sin, so God curses, uh, the serpent and he says, there's going to be this enmity between the serpent and the woman's offspring. And then you see what happens to the woman and has everything. It doesn't change the fact that she's female. It's that now these roles are going to be difficult. There's going to be yes. pain and childbearing. There's going to be pain in, submitting to that authority of her husband and she will be oppressed as a result you know he's going to fight the ground now the, the ground is not going to give in this 
lovely pre-fall way to support his family. He's going to have to fight the ground and it's going to give him thistles and thorns. And so it's very understandable, I think, in a way that as we progress as cultures, that so much of the conflict as we do unhook ourselves from God, but we can't unhook ourselves from reality, the pain of our gendered beings is coming to bear. This is very biblical. And I don't really think it should, especially for Christians, I don't really think it should surprise us at all. I've been a little ashamed that it did surprise me so much, but it it's all gendered. And, um, and, you know, Stephen, you're talking about women working outside of the home. And I think of the Proverbs 31 woman who she's robust. She's this, this strong, um, excellent woman. She's smart. She has wisdom. She deals in commerce. She, she deals, but she does it for the sake of her household. Mm. And so I, I think that you're absolutely right with what you're saying. Um, there's so much there to unpack. We see that a lot, uh, in, in feminist circles is that, well, I want to get married or I am married and I have no desire for children and I have desire for business. Um, I don't like wine. I like beer and scotch whiskey. Uh, I enjoy crude humor. And so it's, it's the stereotypes of, of what mostly we would consider to be masculine traits. And then they also add it on, which I think just adds more to the whole confusion of what identity is. And Stephen, I think you, you're absolutely right with, we have unhitched it from, from procreation. And again, going back to creation norms, natural law, and um, that's where we're just, we are completely confused now. Um, you know, I, having, having four sons and now, uh, well, not, not, and now I have a daughter who's two. So we've introduced, well, girly things into the home. And so for the first time, there's these, uh, little baby toys uh, or, or baby baby dolls and 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 one of my boys is like interested in, in playing with the, the dolls with with my little girl and my wife was like I, i'm not so sure if this is good it you know is this and i thought you know what we can show him that he could be nurturing and supportive so that when he grows up he can be a good because a good dad loves his children and to, and to take care and there's not he's not going to grow up to be an effeminate boy because he wants to to do so plus on top of that he's he's constantly doing other things that are more of a masculine trait and uh, he's being shown a work ethic at home and so on and but that's part of but he gets to grow up in a culture and i, I hate to use the word but a bubble of a father and a mother who love him and and love his 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 brothers and his sister and he gets to see how that family is working together and so there's there's a there's a tension but there's there's something very beautiful about it that he's going to see yeah and you it's not that you don't want him to grow up to be an effeminate man because there's something wrong with femininity the main reason i would think um or at least one of the main reasons is because you would know that it's not in his interest to grow up that way because generally speaking, women won't be interested in him. Women don't want effeminate men. They've got girlfriends uh, mm -hmm. to sort of fulfill those kinds of needs. They, they want masculine men. Um, but but can, I think, you know, both you and Mary said something that absolutely has to be said and, and, and at least briefly explored that we can, we, we can talk all we want about repressing nature and about rejecting the created order but you know as you said mary you can you can say that it doesn't exist but it exists it exists and it and it always comes back uh to bite you and, and that's what's yeah. this, this could be our, our, our sort of our big sort of opportunity i mean i think you know as i you know as we've all sort of said elsewhere the more this kind of thinking progresses the darker the world has to become it just has to become that way because human nature is objective and God tells us how to think about ourselves and how to behave, not because he's some kind of authoritarian, but because he does actually want us to be happy. Um, he, he wants order. And so any deviation from that is going to lead to sort of immiserization, if you like. And we're seeing it with girls sports. Uh, we're seeing it with 
mental illness um, being considered a form of being considered sanity, that's just going to lead to more mental illness. Girl safety is going to be totally compromised. Uh, we're seeing one thing we haven't spoken so much about is rapid onset gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. huge uh, all around the Western world, particularly in the UK and, and, and America, basically just kids deciding one day uh, en masse that, oh, I'm actually a different gender to what my body is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, irreversible puberty blockers and surgery. So, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a sense in which we're going to learn that there is an objective reality. It's just, we're going to have to learn it the hard way. And that's why it's so important for churches and Christians and Christian colleges and institutions not to jump on this bandwagon, because yeah. that just means that we don't seem all that much brighter than the world. And the world will be looking for reasons for where they went wrong. And we've got to be, be there to offer those. Yeah, there, I spent a tremendous amount of time um, watching videos of detransitioners, Stephen, um, and these are people who, and so this is connected to the rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, and so those who have that rapid onset, it tends to come up in adolescent girls. They don't even fit the criterion that we generally use for those who are gender dysphoric. That usually comes up in toddlerhood. And, um, because of the rapidity with which now the medical community and the education community and counseling are encouraged to, um, put these kids into identifying differently, having them have new names, socially transitioning them and and making these medical interventions. There is this growing body of people who are on the other side. They've done the damage to their bodies. They've been encouraged. And because our bodies, you know, we've talked about puberty and, and growth. Well, that's an ongoing thing throughout your entire life. You have these biological things that are coded into every cell of your body that are going to happen to you. And so it's not one time, it's this constant battle. Um, so there's this growing group of people who are asking the questions, you know, why was I encouraged to do this? Why wasn't I told that there would be all these side effects? Why wasn't I given the statistics um, that this wouldn't, cure my dysphoria. And yet their voices are being silenced. I mean, you've never seen the kind of vitriol thrown at people that you do at this group of people who have actually been there. They've had those experiences. I think that we as believers who are called to love, um, and what is love? It's not just affirming everything that a person wants, but who are called to love. We need to have our eyes out and we need to be prepared to speak in love to this group of people that is being horribly damaged by this ideology. It's it's not just the girls who have suddenly biological boys in their locker rooms, although that's that's damaging in and of itself, but everyone is affected by this. I mean, name a person who isn't. Everyone's affected by this. It's it's parental rights. It's it's just everything. Um, And I I agree with you. We can't go on with it and um, go along with it. And we need to have a response for people when they come out on the other side and they have questions and they have hurts that need to be answered. Mm. And we need to have our own families and institutions free from that ideology. So we don't uh, descend into the same abyss that everyone else will. Um, You can, you can say you, you can, you can use all the most eloquent words in the world, but nothing will be as powerful as Christian communities living according to God's created order and the contrast between us and the rest, that will just speak so much more loudly and clearly than anything else. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about some some practical things that could be done. Uh, And I'm going to bring up something that happened just recently at Calvin University. There's uh, some Calvin University students are firing back at their classmates who reportedly use campus as a platform to promote anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. A group of court classmates set up a discussion table on campus on Tuesday with a banner that read LGBTQ sin. The Bible says, change my mind. One student responded and said that uh, uh, this was people going out of their way. This is one student commenting on it. This was people going out of their way to make other people feel uncomfortable. And I would say that this is hate speech. And that's how it's uh, culturally, all these issues for Christians to have 
now, whether or not this was a was a right thing to do for the students, I'm, I'm not going to tackle that uh, per se. But um, everything, any kind of disagreement, is now being framed as this is hate speech, and so a number of faculty were going out and saying, LGBTQ, we love you, and we affirm you. Now, I, I don't have a problem with, with saying to the LGBTQ person, I love you. You are an image bearer of God. But because I love you, I cannot affirm what you are doing because it is, it is a perversion of creation. It is a perversion of what God has called good. But that's just going to throw me in jail. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean at least that, that's where we're getting. Or, or, or at least slap me with a fine, um, get me canceled or, or whatever. Uh, get, job. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just I got blocked on Twitter the other day uh, because I tweeted out PSA, God, um, God orchestra or what did I say? I said something along that God determined your your race and your sexuality. And it got flagged and I got I got kicked. I got put in timeout. <laughs> wow. Oh, congratulations. Um, <laughs> can, can I say a few things to that? I, 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 there are a few things going on to my mind. And it is, it's sort of this confusion between the right to pursue happiness as opposed to the right to be happy. And they're two very, very different things. Um, and what I mean by that is certainly over the last sort of 50, 60 years, and it goes with sort of immense prosperity and, and technological advances that have made life so much easier, essentially you know, we've come to believe that the meaning of life is, is happiness, uh, rather than, for example, doing one's duty to one's family and to one's nation and to one's God. We're increasingly seeing well, what's the meaning of life? Well, basically to be happy. And once as a culture, we start seeing life's very meaning in terms of happiness, then it's not very far from that to then start saying, well, I have a right then to be happy. Uh, how could you not have a right to have a meaningful life? And if a meaningful life is happiness, then I must have a right to be happy. But it gets even more interesting because here's the thing, folks. If I have a right to be happy, that means anyone who does or says anything that makes me unhappy is violating my right. And what do we have governments and states for if not to make sure that we don't violate one another's rights. And so the whole hate speech uh, phenomenon and sort of speech equals violence and the idea is that you can say things that upset people and that is considered sort of illegitimate speech that should be dealt with by the state. That is something that kind of piggybacks on a massive worldview shift over the last 70 years from the right to pursue happiness to the right to be happy based on our changing understanding of what the meaning of, of life is. And again, that's because, again, you know, we've unhooked our conception of human happiness from a conception of what it is to be human. Yeah. Yeah, it just dawned on me as you were talking about that, that the idea of pursuing happiness is to acknowledge that you're not always happy. <laughs> You, yeah. you're going after it, you know, and, but it's not something that you always have. And I do think that we have this expectation that I should always be happy. And if you ruin that, then you are in the wrong, but then we have to define the categories of who deserves to be happy versus who doesn't, because we have this whole group of people now who, um, you know, it makes them happy to speak truth or their version of happiness conflicts with the current version of happiness. And so uh, it really, um, it, it's a Pandora's box of troubles. <laughs> so. Yeah, troubles and contradictions and conflicts. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and this is the thing, even great philosophers have, have said that you, you don't become happy by pursuing happiness. Like John Stuart Mill said that in his autobiography, and, and he was right. He was, he's not a Christian, but he was right. Even, even secular minds sort of see you, you don't pursue happiness directly. I mean, what does it even mean to pursue happiness directly? I mean, you can pursue pleasure directly, but pleasure is different from happiness. You pursue happiness by doing things that, that give you your life meaning and, and make you feel fulfilled. And then when you're doing those things, you kind of, you might, you might notice every now and then in life, you just have this realization at this moment, like 
everything just seems okay. <laughs> They're rare moments in some ways, but every now and then you have that moment where it's just like, right now, I'm happy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you're not at that moment pursuing happiness. Right. Um, right. right. You're doing it, something else. You're not even thinking about happiness. Yeah. It makes me think of these um, people who are, you know, they're pursuing this ideal that's not based in reality, thinking mm. that it will ultimately make them happy. And so it's really so very cruel <laughs> to, yeah. to set them on this course and to say, oh, if we can, if we can just achieve this thing that's unachievable, then maybe you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And all the statistics are showing us that probably it's not going to work out. But yes, let's let's choose that track for you. It really is so unkind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the question starts arising in their minds. Well, I'm not happy and I should be happy. So obviously someone is to blame for this. Mm -hmm. And if I can't think of anyone in particular, then let's go a bit more abstract and let's talk about a system. Yes. And so that's when we start talking about systemic this or systemic that. Um, right. And it's, that's that's possibly the, the paradox or that that, we're, that you've sort of un, uncovered for us, Mary. That when we actually try to pursue happiness and when we tell people that they have a right to be happy, that's kind of a recipe for unhappiness. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know the Westminster divines in their short catechism, they they recognize that happiness is an important aspect of one's life and identity. And their first question is, what is the chief end of man? Yes. And the chief end of man is to enjoy God. And to glorify him forever. And just a couple just reading about that in Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity. Ah, great, Thomas great Watson. A couple pop items just on, on the calendar that just recently happened in the news is uh is the possible conversion of Jordan Peterson, as well as Milo, and I'm drawing a blank on his last name. Anopolis. Anopolis. Any thoughts about those two two uh announcements i know milo is his is more of, of a that he has converted and he's walked away from homosexual lifestyle or bisexual lifestyle i forget which one he was he was holding to but then the other one is has been through an interview that jordan peace uh, peterson did where he was talking about how he has gratitude for what christ has done uh, and the interviewer didn't really get into it but it was it was a very striking a uh, bit of information, 20 minutes. I could put in the show notes after uh, once this podcast goes up, but it's very moving. And the man is in just in tears uh, from his uh, recent, just over the past couple of years, he's been through quite the, yeah. quite, quite a season, but he talks about Christ in his life. Uh, of course, he, like I said, he didn't go on to say that, that he is converted. Now he's, you know, he holds the apostles creed and, and so on and what church he's a member of, but it, it is, it's astounding. Um, Stephen, any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, you know, I saw Jordan Peterson live here in Australia a couple of years ago, and he was absolutely mesmerizing. Um, he just held an audience of, of hundreds uh, who, who just looked like regular, most of them regular working class, lower middle class men, a lot of women there, just in the palm of his hands. He was absolutely brilliant. Um, I don't know exactly what he means, because, I mean, what he said was, Basically, I believe in Christ, and he meant that in the sense I believe in Christ and, and the work that he did, and that I believe, but I don't know, I can't explain my belief, and he found that incredibly moving. I, I definitely think over the last sort of 12 to 18 months, he has been on, on a journey, and, and I would like to think actually closer to Christ, so I actually do think something genuine uh, is taking place. Uh, having said that, uh, Peterson is, is extremely intellectual and exactly what he means by I believe in Christ, it's not immediately obvious, but, but I do think uh, that he's been moving closer to Christ over the last 18 months. So I, I do think there's no doubt sincerity in what he's saying and that in actual fact, it is progress. Mm. I, I honestly do believe that. And, 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 and the same with, with Maya, Milo Yiannopoulos and anyone who's sort of been paying attention to either of those figures over the last sort of three years has kind of seen this unfolding. And they've been dropping hints, particularly Milo has been dropping hints for years, um, even sort of at the height of his fame, condemning his own homosexuality and, and saying that, you know, I, I don't want it. It's, it's not necessarily good, but this is who I am. Um, 
And so I definitely think that both both men are absolutely sincere. And, and I think that, you know, we just got to keep praying for them, pray harder yeah. for them, because great things are happening. And what could be going on is, again, something that I think one of you sort of said earlier, I think, Josh, you might have opened up by, by basically saying Christ is clearly in this sort of cultural moment that we're in. He is clearly changing lives. And what might be happening is that we're really seeing the cultural, social, psychological, mental health results of a post-Christian culture. It's unfolding and very deep thinking people mm. are realizing what we've lost. Yeah, recognizing the real world implications of all the yeah. things that were happening in theory so many decades ago, you know, through this time. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. I, you were mentioning it this morning, Joshua was the first that I had heard about Jordan Peterson. Um, and I actually have a couple of friends. I can't wait to text because, <laughs> um, I have friends, uh, and I think Stephen, the first time you and I met in South Carolina, I distinctly remember talking about Jordan Peterson with you and discussing the fact that there were a number of these kind of thought leaders that you and I admired, but who were not Christians that we were praying for. And so mm -hmm. that's, so encouraging to just to know that the Lord hears and responds to these prayers, you know, yeah. and I don't know if um, you guys experience this, but sometimes, especially when I'm praying for people whom I've not met, I only know them via their celebrity in certain ways. And I do have a number of people who have touched my heart that I do pray for. It can feel silly sometimes. Um, and yet it's not the Lord mm. hears those prayers. And I think too, of, um, other people who had been touched by, uh, like Rush Limbaugh's profession of faith before his death and how, what, how many people had been praying for him through the years. And, um, God is so powerful and so willing to hear those prayers, um, those prayers of his children and respond to them. It's very encouraging. I think you're right. These aren't silly prayers. I mean, I, I, here's someone who I, I openly confess I pray for. This is going to sound very strange. I actually pray for Billie Eilish because she has oh. such an impact on, on the, the minds of, of young girls. And she's, I think, very close friends with Justin Bieber. Now, of course, you know, these people aren't necessarily sort of doctrinally identical to us. But I, I do pray that, that Bieber will have a really positive impact on her and then, and she'll sort of make a profession for Christ. Yes. And I pray, I've prayed, you know, for others as well. Uh, Katie Perry, who has a strong background as a believer. So I think mm -hmm. these are, are excellent prayers. And when you think of the, the impact that uh, Kanye West had, when he yeah. made those very strong professions for Christ, th th this is not small potatoes, you know, right. and they're all struggling. They're all on a journey. I mean, could any of us imagine what it would be like to be a Christian in Hollywood? to be a Christian yeah. at the top of, at the top of the game. I mean, the, the temptations, the temptations yeah. would be unbelievable. And so it shouldn't surprise us every now and then they stumble and we shouldn't be watching out for them to stumble. We should be encouraging them and, and, and writing them letters and praying for them. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Kanye in 2019 when his, his album, Jesus is yeah. King, that was trending on Twitter as a hashtag for two weeks. Jesus yeah. is King. I mean, putting yeah. Christ at the front. Go, go to YouTube and read the comments. It, they're, they're unbelievable. I mean, I have, one of his songs is one of my favorite songs now. It's God Is. It's just a perfect song. It's just so beautiful. And when you go to YouTube and look at the comments, you see dozens and dozens. There are hundreds. There are thousands of comments under it. And many of them are something like, hadn't been to church in 15 years, listened to this song, going to church for the first time wow. today. You know, are people reconnecting with the Lord through that music. Uh, it, it's it's just it's incredible. Uh, look, Milo, you know, he's on a journey. He's still living with his husband, although it's a non-sexual relationship. And I think he even publicly posts how many days he's been free from sodomy. He actually has, I think, uh, days free from sodomy, and it's wow. it's it's basically nearly a year now. Um, yeah, this, this is amazing stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, Christ, you know, the Spirit is is working in people. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we'll close with this. And this is also from Dr. Jones's last article again that you can find on the website. Uh, right article. Free, free speech. He says, we cannot avoid cultural involvement. It is what God has required of us from the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over it. Thus, we must work and engage in political involvement, but we may have to risk our jobs, our companies, our friends, our children, and all the societal freedoms we have taken for granted. We cannot be silent, both for the love of God and for the love of neighbor. Folks, uh, don't forget April 5th to the 10th is our, again, is our online symposium. Those, uh, the lectures will be posted on YouTube. They'll be streaming uh, on Facebook, as well as Twitter, as well as on the website. Please uh, mark those dates down. And uh, thanks, Stephen and Mary, for being on the program. Thanks for Always a pleasure. This concludes our episode of the Truth Exchange podcast, the unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. Be sure to drop us a line, let us know how you think we're doing, or let us know about anything that you would like to see us address in upcoming episodes. Remember, this podcast is only made possible from friends like you.